Hello and welcome to Can't Find My Way Home, the podcast where expats from around the globe talk about the music and art scene in their adopted home. I'm your host, Craig. In this episode of Can't Find My Way Home, I was joined by Nancy Ruth. Nancy's a singer, songwriter, composer and recording artist. Her Spanish roots eventually led her to Malaga, Spain, where she's been based for the last 20 years or so. An early love of jazz was ignited by family jazz sessions while growing up in British Columbia, Canada. And she went on to study music at the Royal Conservatory of Music, Douglas College and Berklee College of Music. Nancy talks us through her musical influences, the changes in the music business and why there's so much more you need to know to survive in today's marketplace. We talk about the power of the riff, the pros and cons of monetizing content, her own music, of course, and the concept behind it, and why we should all be adopting the Alexander Technique. There's musical adventures in Morocco, a who's who in flamenco, performing on cruise ships, it's not all plain sailing, and getting the gig to play for the royal family in Brunei. In the top five, there's Taylor Swift, 80s rock, jam tunes, playing at International Jazz Festival in Senegal, as well as a hot list of who we should be listening to. All this and why being a musician these days is like an extreme sport. Let's get right to it. Nancy Ruth. Uh, well, a lot of traveling, a long road. Um, I think I knew early on that I was a singer and a performer. I started out in musical theater, went to classical uh, music school uh, conservatory in Canada. And um, and then when I was uh, about 21, I decided that I'd had enough of noontime uh, aria recitals, and I joined a heavy metal band. <laughs> so that was my my uh, <laughs> that sort of was a good start. Um, I went on the road. Uh, that was in the late 80s. So I got to live that whole 80s thing where there were big budgets for big bands and big light shows shows and PAs and, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll, the whole thing, you know. So I went on the road for a few years and I think I learned everything I needed to know (laughs) for what was going to be my future in the music (laughs) business. Yeah, and more. So I really learned how to take care of myself, learned how to pace myself, learned how to keep take care of my voice. Um, learned how to, to, to stay away from uh, temptations that probably wouldn't be good for me. I learned how to deal with the, the road in general, traveling. It's grueling, you know, so, but I've been on the road ever since. So I've been on the road for 35 years, basically. So that was my start. But <clears throat> after a few years in rock and roll bands, I got a little bit tired of the music. I, I really wanted a deeper experience. And I went back to study and studying jazz and really get, getting more into harmony and, and composition. And so I think my career as a songwriter started, you know, still while I was in my, in my 20s. But that whole discovery was very exciting to me you know, discovering jazz and then Latin music because I had traveled in Latin America. And I was always really fascinated by flamenco and the flamenco guitar. And I really wanted to go to Spain. So when I finally got to Spain, I thought, okay, this is my place. This is where I really feel most inspired to write. I also feel like that sort of freedom of anonymity is, is helpful, you know, like being away from all of the all of the influences of family and friends and everything that I grew up with, just to be able to be completely alone and isolated uh, with my own intuition, musical intuition, and to see where that would lead me. That's that's what led me to my own approach to composition and songwriting. So it was hard because I was alone when I came here. I, I didn't come with any job or money or a boyfriend or yeah, I didn't even speak Spanish all that well, although I learned very quickly. <laughs> but uh, it was a tremendous experience for me to do that. And that was 20 some odd years ago. And and I'm still here. So that's kind of the, the quick story. Yeah. Excellent. That's a nice summation there. It's kind of, it's a bit tricky to sometimes put the whole lifetime into, you know, five minutes, but there you yeah. go. eloquently said. Uh, what kind of musical influences did, did you grow up with? Did you come from like a musical background? You know, was always music yeah, playing in my, the house? Yeah, you know, my dad was a drummer. And so we had a, a drum kit in the living room. <laughs> my poor mother. I played, my brother played, my, my dad played. We all played the drums. So I think my mother, you know, suffered from migraine headaches. But 
I think my parents <laughs> and wife will, will testify to that. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. My friends. It's so. hard to be the spouse of a musician, for sure. That's why I'm still single, probably. But um, influences um, Led Zeppelin. Definitely. Led Zeppelin probably changed my life. I think the whole primal, guttural, you know, emotional connection that Led Zeppelin had was hugely impactful. But I was also very much influenced by jazz singers like Sarah Vaughan, totally, mm -hmm. totally opposite um, end of the spectrum. And then later, of course, uh, Paco de Lucia or any kind of traditional flamenco I was very drawn to. And so quite um, diverse influences. I'm a little bit unaware of what's happening because maybe because I'm so immersed in my day-to-day -day routine, which as you know, as a musician these days is a long list of things. I mean, I remember when I started out in the eighties, it was like 95% music and 5% uh, management and stuff. And now, I mean, we as artists have to be composers, we're instrumentalists, we're, we're kick-ass performers, all that stuff that we used to be. But now we also have to be video editors, uh, sound technicians, we have to be roadies, we have to be our own tour manager, we have to be our own agent, we have to be our own manager, um, we have <laughs> social media uh, managers, PR people, uh, we got to be uh, YouTubers, we've got to understand how Spotify algorithms work. I mean, it's just the endless, endless list of things that we have to do as artists today that is enough to make a, a person uh, dizzy. I mean, forget about this thing called, what do they call it? Work-life balance. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that uh, that just does not exist if you're a musician because being a musician these days is like an extreme sport. So, so, um, so I might be a little bit out of the loop. Maybe my attention span is also shorter too. You know, when I go on Instagram or I, you know, try to find new music to listen to on Spotify, I'll say, Got it. Then I get distracted because I've got to answer an email, you know, so it's tough <laughs> stuff these days. It's an interesting point. I, I really enjoy your, uh, and just as Instagram there, these little shots that you're putting up or reels, mm -hmm. whatever they're calling them now on Instagram. Yeah. You can tell I'm out of date already, right? <laughs> changing it before. But these are, you're putting up these great little shots about, um, set lists and uh you know and all sorts of tell us a little bit about that yeah shorts you got to get with the lingo shorts on youtube <laughs> and reels on instagram yeah during the pandemic i i kind of lost my momentum in terms of uh touring and um i thought and i you know like the whole instagram thing it can be very self-centered like listen to me look at me uh here's a new photo of me um, I thought, why don't I change that and be useful to people? <laughs> so I thought, you know, because I've been doing this so long, I thought maybe I could share some of the things that I've learned the hard way, you know, in the music business. And so I, I made a whole series called Gig Advice, and it's really designed to give one-minute tips for especially musicians and singers that are starting out and they want a gig. And I basically teach them everything they don't learn in music school. So, because <laughs> I've seen this so many times. I mean, I teach and, and I have incredible vocalists that come to me for classes. And I was like, I don't need to teach you how to sing, but you have to learn how to run a rehearsal, rehearsal. And, you know, you've got to understand uh, chord changes and how a lead sheet works. And you have to understand how to communicate with musicians and how to count in a tune. You know, what do you do when you get to the venue? What do you do when you leave the venue? Uh, you know, what should you wear so that, you know, you're not trying to adjust your belt and your jewelry and everything else while you're performing. So <laughs> all these little details, little things that you learn on the road, you know. So I made this whole series called Gig Advice and it's on YouTube. I put these videos up on my Instagram, Nancy Ruth Music, every Tuesday. And then on Thursdays, I'm doing a different series, which is breaking down my composition and songwriting process. So again, like they're one minute tips. So it was a great one the other day, just about riffs. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like the, creating riffs, you know, like was it the when dominant you, fifth or the dominant seventh? Or <laughs> I forget what it was. But, well, there yeah. were a couple of different ones that I've done so far. And one was a riff in five, four times. So how do you create mm -hmm. a riff in an odd time signature, you know? And that's really fun. I mean, I started by creating a bass line and then, you know, filling out the harmony. There's another riff that I created that was inspired by the sound of a construction site. So sometimes you can hear sounds in your environment 
and turn those into musical ideas. So that was the concept for the riff that I'm working on for the next uh, five weeks. So that, that song is called Temporary Home. And it was yeah based on like banging nails and a very kind of like aggressive dissonant sound with, you know, uh, yeah. So there was a sharp nine in the chord. I start with a harmonic idea and then break it down, syncopate it, arpeggiate it, and then create a riff in whatever time signature I think would be appropriate for the idea. And so, yeah, I'm having fun with those. They're actually a lot of work to do. But so I'm going to have to start to monetize That's this. That's the bit that people don't see, right? <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot of thought behind it and preparation yeah, and presentation. A lot and of work, getting it you right. know, because I like to do things well, like my production quality. I like to keep it high. So when I do those reels, I, I record the sound separately. You know, I do, I do the video on the iPhone and then I'm recording the sound on Logic and then I'll mix it and make it look and sound good. So I'm thinking what I need to do <laughs> is create an online course out of all this stuff so that at least, you know, like I can get paid because I think most musicians are dealing with these days is how do we monetize all this stuff that we're doing? You know, like I just made this long list of stuff that we have to do to keep the ball rolling. And I've looked at the Patreon model. But I'm not entirely convinced that that's the way to go because, well, for one thing, people are so used to getting everything for free. Okay, so Nancy's charging now, so I think I'll go somewhere else. I mean, <clears throat> although hopefully I'll have, you know, some enough value for, for people to sign up to whatever course I might create. But And certainly to come out to shows because that will be something that I'll hopefully get back to next year. But um, how do we... How do we monetize uh, all this work that we're putting into our social media? You know, it's like the, the social media giants are making so much money off of us and, and we have become slaves. That's got to stop. Oh, I got to do something. I totally agree with you. What about the, um, just as you're talking there about Patreon and, and monetization and so on, it's amazing that people sometimes forget that, you know, musicians have to eat as well. It's always like an afterthought. You know? yeah. like, hey, can you, can you guys come and play my bar tomorrow night? We'll give you some beer, right? <laughs> you know, or, or whatever. It people might, have no clue. They have no clue. And this is something that I battle with because gigs pay the same now as they did 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, I mean, I got paid more like 30 years ago that I'm getting paid now for gigs. I, I guess I started out kind of on a high, but mm -hmm. um, the big bands I was singing with, but uh, it's, it's, it's not, I, w I think artists are starting to figure out that we've got to turn this thing around. It's, it's, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. Definitely. It's one of those things where you'll find maybe people have been taking gigs for less money or they just take whatever's going and then this kind of lows the market for everyone else, you know, so that's what it's become. Yeah. Well, that's definitely part of it too, because, um, well, just to tell you what it's like here on the, in the South of Spain, it's a really ugly scene. If you ask me in terms of gig gigs, like I just mean bar restaurant gigs, because, the going thing now is singers or saxophone players playing with karaoke tracks, playing with backing tracks. And it's cheap and it's easy, it's portable, and people don't care, it seems like. So I also think that the audience doesn't have the criteria that they that they might. Now, probably in a city, you wouldn't get away with this. But here in this touristy area in the sun, this is a big thing, you know. So when I'd go out to do local gigs, I'm doing my elegant jazz thing, you know, or, or I play, you know, like Spanish music as well. I love playing boleros and bossa novas and, and, um, my own stuff, but you know, I'm a, a trained musician. I bring my piano, my gear and some really amazing uh, instrumentalists come along and I've had, uh, agents come up to me and say, why don't you just go out with backing tracks? Like, are you? kidding me I, I would never do that like i would never do that and i would just rather wash dishes or scoop ice cream but i will never go out and sing with backing tracks and <laughs> what the hell i didn't like I'd become an artist to do that like it just totally defeats the purpose but people get used to this kind of a thing that's what frightens me is that even the physio physiological reaction to the bad sound systems that you hear like i don't know how people tolerate it if I was eating in a restaurant and I, and I heard some somebody playing, you know, singing Proud Mary with uh, karaoke tracks, I would like, I would run. <laughs> I would run. <laughs> but I don't know, people seem to like that stuff around here. It's horrible. 
I got to get out of here. <laughs> oh, the, there's no, what does it say? There's no acquiring for taste or yeah. whatever it may be. You know? Tell us a little bit your own music, Nancy. I was, when I was having a look through your website, um, the, the latest was just a three track EP you put together. But the song was called Breathing in Indigo. Maybe we could say. Oh, yeah. I love that, I tune. really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Well, it will be, it was released as a single and will be part of an album at some point when I get back to recording. But my concept, of the, you know, the, the thing that I've tried to create here is really a natural coming together of my influences of jazz, rock, and flamenco. And so Breathing in Indigo is a really good example of how that all comes together because you've got flamenco-based rhythms. Um, it's very guttural. It's very primal. Uh, it's very raw. Um, but then you've got some beautiful, beautiful harmony in there, incredible guitar playing by Luis Robisco, um, a really interesting approach to bass playing by Juan Soto, and the bass then, sounds fantastic. Yeah, the whole track he, sounds great. I mean, really well, really well produced. Yeah, so, well, well, very well produced. Yeah, yeah. So that, that so I produced that with um, Juan Soto, who who I collaborate with sometimes in the studio, and so that was the sound that I've been trying to create all these years in Spain, and it 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 finally came together on that track, I think, because for one thing, I really know what I wanted to hear in the recording. I really had a clear vision of what that was going to be, and uh, I was able to bring that to life with with the great players that I have, obviously, and, um, and the approach to vocals that I have, which is, you know, I mean, I'm obviously influenced by beautiful phrasing from, from my jazz background, but there's also a great intensity and I think a dramatic edge to the sound. And uh, lyrically, there's a bit of mystery there because I also like to leave things open to interpretation. Uh, so I, I, I produced uh, and directed a, a, a documentary called Musical Adventures in Morocco. And Morocco is, of course, close to Spain. It's, you know, North Africa. So it's just like 14 kilometers across the Strait of Gibraltar. And there's Africa. And it's a whole different world. I mean, there aren't all that many places in the world. And I've traveled a lot. But there aren't many places in the world left where you can go and and there's really no influence of Western culture. I mean, no McDonald's, you know, and, um, no bad thing. yeah, it's like, it's the same now as it was 400 years ago in certain areas, you know, obviously mm. the big cities are, are different, but in the country, I mean, I remember traveling through Morocco 20 years ago and, and, and people didn't know what, um, what money was. I remember giving money to somebody thinking, you know, is that the thing to do? Like in the middle of the Atlas mountains, like, what the hell is this? They don't, didn't know what it was. So whenever I travel, I like to explore the musical traditions of the land. And the music of North Africa has always been very fascinating to me because of their unique approach to tuning and microtones. And um, it just produces a certain sound that viscerally I receive. Like I, I really, I just love it. I don't know. Some people find it very dissonant and difficult. But so I went out to seek musicians in Africa, in, in Morocco, particularly to collaborate with. And I found these incredible musicians and uh, we put a project together. I, I wrote a tune that I thought would be harmonically and rhythmically interesting for them to play and sing to. And sure enough, it was. So, so I brought a, a small team down with, with me uh, to Morocco and, um, and filmed this, uh, process of putting a musical project together in in a place where there's um nothing in common other than music so no common you know gender in my case no common um you know language uh no common musical tradition uh no common religion or culture so the whole point of the documentary is how beautiful is it that music goes past all of that i mean it just does so it was a beautiful experience and the documentary, it's just 15 minutes long. It's quite short. So it did the festival circuit. And now I'm not sure what to do with it. So it's just sitting unlisted on YouTube. But I was going to say, we can find the whole clip on YouTube. Yeah, yeah no, it's not. It's not. It's not there yet because I'm thinking, well, maybe I should, um, you know, send this to local TV stations or something or a couple more festivals before it's released. Well, I'm intrigued yeah. to, 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 hear and, uh, to hear and see more.
On my website, nancyruth.com, there's a, a link to film, which you can, you know, see the trailer and hear a little bit more about it. So I'll keep people posted there. Excellent. Well, yeah. just as a kind of, there might be a Led Zeppelin theme running through this episode. <laughs> yes, but that's true. Yeah. I remember hearing uh, Robert Plant interviewed. He does, he does his own podcast, the name of which will come back to me probably tomorrow, but it's, it's well worthy. They only do runs of maybe six episodes or something like that. And then it's just him being interviewed mm-hmm. and he talks about his back catalog. But one of the, the episodes I really enjoyed is when he's talking about this kind of Moroccan experience or the going into the Atlas Mountains. And really getting lost, because I guess when they did it in 1973 or whatever it was, you really would get lost. Yeah. It was just yeah, totally. really off the beaten track. And uh, yeah, yeah. I think even today he's still really influenced by these these sounds, and you can hear that in a lot of the... Cashmere. Oh, my God. I love yes. that. Yeah. That's uh, that's a tune and a half, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I have a, I have a question for you, Nancy. This is yeah. from, with someone who's not... Uh, never really had any musical training like that, speaking for myself. But I'm really curious about the Alexander technique. You know, when we talk about mm. drummers, I, I primarily was a drummer, you know, drummers always get bad backs, right? Because your postures, you just get into that position and then automatically that's where you gravitate to, right? You just sit down and you do it. But of course, over time, over years, you get older, the, the body starts to kind of uh, break down a little bit. But the Alexander technique is something... I'd heard of it, and then I had a look when I was reading your website. I had a look a bit more into it, but I thought you could share some of your uh, yeah. experience of it. And what well, it is. I found out about it when I was having vocal problems doing musical theater years ago. And actually, somebody showed me uh, some photos that they had taken of a performance that I used to do this show up in the north of Canada. And it was a, a gig that I did for years, actually, uh, great musical theater show that I did. And I was doing this thing where I would like arch my back and put my head up and, you know, forcing my shoulders and creating a lot of unnecessary tension. And somebody said, you should really take some Alexander technique lessons. And I did. And and I I studied with uh, three different teachers in Vancouver and Victoria in Canada. And it totally changed my uh, approach to singing and playing and sports, riding horses. Um, Basically, the the fundamental of it is is that you shouldn't use any more energy than you need to to do anything. Quite often we think we need to force. Like if you're a drummer, for example, it's a perfect example because it's a very physical activity. So you could be thinking that you got to bang really hard and tense up your arms and your shoulders and your neck to re- really, you know, crash those tom toms or you know get a really snappy snares down. Thwack, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But the the truth is, is that if you use your body in a more uh, efficient way, you can get an even better sound without stress. And of course, save your back and your whole body in the process. A lot of the Alexander technique um, theory comes from this fear response that we get socially even, you know, like you meet somebody for the first time, you kind of get a little tense up, Mm. you know, and so like shake their hand and then it creates tension and you can hear it in people's, Oh, hello. Nice to meet you. You know, and this is of course very common in singers. You know, if we get nervous, uh, what do we do? We tense up our neck. So this is what I'm, it's a mantra that I have for my own self when I'm in a performance situation or anytime talking to you right now. Um, okay. I'm sitting down. I let my seat, you know, seat bones fall into the chair and, uh, lengthen the back and widen the back, free the neck breathe deeply and all of a sudden no pasa nada as we say in spain you know like it's uh, <laughs> it feels good so this is something i teach my students and uh, something that i try to uh, you know maintain myself is this good use of the the body very very useful technique teaching yourself what kind of um, what kind of students do you get coming to you primarily you're online License or you, you, you're doing face to face also? I, I have a few students online, but I, uh, because they're in Canada or the United States, but I teach Spanish, um, singers quite often who are incredible, mostly professionals or semi professionals, and they want to learn more about American popular music or they want to sing jazz. 
most of the time, the, the thing that I find with the singers that I have coming to me is they, they want to learn what to do what I do, right? So they see me touring around and managing bands and writing and they say, oh, I want to have that kind of uh, control over my own career. So I help them with um, understanding harmony, learning how to manage rehearsals and bands and how to pitch tours. I mean, a lot of singers come in, they don't even know how to count in a tune, right? So they're waiting for the drummer or the bass player to count in the tune. So what I try to do is empower singers so that they feel more confident and they can go into a situation and, and take charge, you know? And so, uh, and I want to get rid of all those singer cliches, like, oh, you know, how many singers does it take uh, to whatever? <laughs> like, uh, uh, what's, there's a singer joke, like uh, something about, knocking on the door and she doesn't know when to come in or I don't even know, like, I don't care. But, <laughs> but the point is, <laughs> is I want singers to become full fledged musicians and, and full, you know, equal parts of the band so that they feel more in control and more empowered in their careers. Excellent. Well, there's definitely a lot to learn. And Maybe one of the differences between, let's just say Spanish speaking singers and English speaking singers, Obviously, linguistically, they're going to be different, but the sounds that you make naturally, you know, the, the phonics and so on, does, mm -hmm. do you hear a lot of differences or try to teach? Totally different. And I'm fascinated by it. And I honestly have not figured out some of the things that I'm trying to figure out. For example, cantaores or cantaores, people who sing flamenco, they're using kind of a very high belt, as we call it in singing, you know, chest voice. And yet they don't lose their voices. And I don't know how the hell they do this. And I think it partly has to do with the way that their their mouth is shaping. So they're they've got this um this is singer talk, but they're raising their soft pal their their palate, they're ah you know, this ah sound. And I think the other thing that they do, which saves them vocally, is that they just give it all. Like there's no body tension, right? And I think this is how some rock singers too continue to sing in this very uh, aggressive way, but they're kind of just like letting it loose because a lot of our problems are created by tension. So if you're just kind of going for it, um, you know, and Spaniards, they are very comfortable with their feelings, <laughs> you know? And this is something that I have learned uh, to deal with too, because, you know, a Spaniard, uh, this has happened to me on the road too, a guitar player I used to work, he used to get so angry at me. And then like five minutes later, he was fine. It's like, oh, is everything okay? You know, at first I was like, holy shit, what did I do? You're never going to talk to me again. <laughs> you know, there was a mosquito in your room. What am I going to do? You know, they would complain about stupid things. But <laughs> yeah, so I think in terms of, you know, what the difference is between Spanish singers and, you know, maybe Anglo singers or Western Anglo singers, for one thing is this, they're complete, uh, completely in tune with their emotions, which is huge, right? Um, the other thing that they have is this, you know, approach to melismas, as we call, you know, playing with the voice and playing with um, melody in such a way that uh, sometimes they're riffing on the Phrygian mode, for example, mm -hmm. you know, that's what we would, how we would decipher it. And this is something that they just learn because it's in the air, you know, early on, especially in the south of Spain. The north of Spain is a bit different, but in the south of Spain, you know, you've got this flamenco in influence. And so it's completely fascinating for me to to live here and, and listen to that. It's it's a huge influence for me, obviously, because I've always felt like I had a little bit of that in my, in my own voice. Even before I came to Spain, um, I was fascinated by the, these sounds, you know, the, the Phrygian scale um, and some of these rhythms which i found were very kind of like primal i guess you could say the same thing that probably drew me to led zeppelin it's just this primal sense of rhythm and complete um freedom of expression so yeah there is a difference and i think that's what makes some of these brilliant uh, spaniards uh, so so um appealing Maybe you could uh, name drop a few and um, we could put that into the episode as well. Give us some, because it's maybe a, a, f a form of music that 
people know what it is, but they don't know anyone who does it, right? So you might go mm. to YouTube and just type in flamenco and then see where it takes you, right? But who would yeah. you recommend? Well, I mean, if you want to go to the roots um, where there's still a lot of YouTube videos and stuff, you know, for flamenco, go see Camarón. Cameron is if you how you would say it in, in English, Cameron. Cameron. I think on Netflix too, there's like a couple documentaries about him. And um, so he is the epitome of flamenco singing. And, and you can see the perfection in his tuning, even though he's doing these very complex uh, melodies, it's all in tune, you know. Um, and then sort of maybe on the more pop end of things, something more recent, La Nina Pastori. Nina, like N-I-N-A, but with the little thing over the end, Nina Pastori, um, has, um, you know, combined some more jazz and rock influences and pop influence, but still has that very flamenco approach to singing. And then, of course, well, we have Rosalia, <laughs> who's a big thing in pop music now. Um, you can hear, you know, I mean, you can hear all of those influences in what she's doing, you know, and also in, she's incorporating, you know, um, rap and reggaeton and all kinds of other things that I don't really <laughs> even understand that much. But, uh, yeah. And then, so on the guitar front, there's a, a young guitar player named Iago Santos. Yago is Y-A-G-O, Yago Santos, who is a friend of mine. I hired him for some shows like 11 years ago, and he was very young at the time. I think he was 26. And when I worked with him, I thought, this guy, this guy is going somewhere. I just, I just have always championed him and believed him. And sure enough, now he's got record deals with uh, Universal and publishing deals, and he's in New York right now. Um, but he's he's done like flamenco influenced versions of Debussy and of course his own flamenco, more traditional flamenco stuff. And he's just an incredible guitar player. So just as a solo guitar player, check out Jago Santos. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to uh, clipping this a little bit and putting it out there and then uh, sharing that with everyone because I'm sure people will be yeah. not just curious to hear it, see it, but, you know, to kind of share it to hopefully as wide an audience as, as we can. If you only try to make a living out of touring, you just, you get burnt out, especially if you're touring with original music, as, as I have been. And so one of the ways that I financed my own recordings and tours was by performing on cruise ships and and it's a tricky situation because cruise ship life is is a different life. It's it's easy, <laughs> you know. You're in a in a in a room. You walk to the gig. You don't have to set up the gig. You got a sound man. All you have to do is you know put some nice clothes on, come and play your set. Well, you probably have to do four sets, which actually the, mm. the load is heavy. You do four sets a night on ships. But you know, beer is cheap. Lots of cool people to hang out with. Party, party, Definitely. party. Touring. You wake up in a different port every day, and oh, let's go see what South. Africa is like, or, oh, tomorrow we're in <laughs> Namibia. Oh, let's go to Cabo Verde, you know. Oh, tomorrow we're in Valencia, Spain, you know. And so it's very exciting and very erotic. Uh, erotic, sorry. Exotic, sorry. It could be, <laughs> it could be erotic, too, you know. <laughs> you know. It sometimes was. But no, the point, the point is is that it, it's a good gig, as gigs go, you know. Mm. But it, it, you are required to, you know, perform more commercial music. So, But for me, I was playing in, in jazz bars um, and playing and singing, uh, doing the piano vocal gig at first for years. And so I had a lot of freedom of repertoire and I got to work on my chops and got to work on new material. And even when I was working for Disney, um, they were very good about having me doing a set of Spanish stuff or a set of my own stuff and talking about it. So, um, you know, there are opportunities to do that. The, the trick is, though, if you're working on cruise ships and you are an artist and you want to maintain your own artistic integrity and artistic vision, um, you've got to be disciplined in the sense that you've got to like just do cruise ships for maybe three months a year or six months a year, which is what I used to do. So I used to plan it out very carefully. <clears throat> I would do enough cruise ship gigs to, to pay for the rest of the year so that I could take the rest of the year off. And just find uh, a cheap little place to live in the in the south of Spain, and just focus on writing. So I would just bury myself away and just be alone and write, 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 write. And then maybe the next stay, I would uh, work on booking a tour, <clears throat> putting a band together, uh, doing my uh, you know going to Barcelona to record or recording here in Malaga. So I was able to 
combine those two worlds, but it's tricky. You have to be, you have to have a plan to do that. Otherwise you just get lost at sea. And like so many music musicians do, you know, like, Oh my God, it's like a dollar for a beer on the ship. And like, there's girls everywhere, boys or whatever you like, you know, and uh, it, it, it's a very good life for some musicians, you know, and they don't have to do the dishes. Right. So come on. It might be uh, a more suitable gig for younger musicians. Maybe they're coming out of music school or yeah. uh, broken up from a band or something. In there. It's a perfect opportunity because you meet a lot of people as well. You make contacts with other musicians from around the world. And that's been a, a great thing for me. You know, like I, I met a lot of musicians from New York and, on ships. And when I go to New York, it's like, hey, I can call up Bob or Sue or whatever and, and hang out and, and connect. So it's fantastic that way. But yeah, you don't want to get lost out there. If you have your own artistic vision, then you've got to kind of separate those. But I'll just say that's another advantage of ships because I was able to maintain my kind of commercial gig thing on ships and nobody ever had to see it. <laughs> and then I would come back on land and be Nancy the artist, you know, so it was perfect. It's a lot harder hands. to balance those things when you're on land because, I mean, this is the first time in all my years of Spain and 20 years that I've actually done gigs, you know, in Spain. And it's hard because people will see you at a, a beach restaurant playing, you know, jazz standards or, you know, doing some pop stuff or some Stevie Wonder or something. And they mm. think that that's what you do. And I'm like, no, this isn't what I do. This is what I do for a gig. And then I have a band and we tour and we do festivals and concerts. And, oh, what is that? And they can't see it, right? So people like to pigeonhole you very quickly. So in that sense, the cruise thing um, was a good thing. But I'm kind of tired of ships. <laughs> By now, I don't think I'll be okay. going back. <laughs> I, I, I put in my time. So, yeah. Exactly. How did the, the Sultan of Brunei gig come around? What was the, what was the backstory? Then? Oh, it came kind of out of the blue. I was 26 years old at the time, living in Vancouver and looking for work as a singer. I went into an agent's office one day. You know, there used to be agents, not like now, where you could just go into an like knock on the door. Hi, I'm a singer. And oh, come on in. You know, it used to work that way. It doesn't work that way anymore. But there was this uh, agent, his name was John Whitefoot. And I, I came in with my headshot and my cassette tape. You know, I'm talking early 90s yeah. here, <laughs> right? So cassette tape. Yeah. the same page here. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, so, I got you. You got to have your black and white headshot, you know, um, your 8 by 10 and uh, your music. So I said, oh, I'm a singer and da-da-da-da. Here's my tape. And literally the next day he called me and he said, do you have a passport? And I said, no, I, I can get one. You know, he said, well, I've got a gig for you singing for the Sultan of Brunei, but you have to be able to sing in different languages. And I, and I, because I had a classical background and learned to sing in Italian, French, and, and German, I was pretty good at phonetically, at least being able to reproduce those sounds, you know? So because I had to sing in Malaysian, like a Malay language is called in, in Japanese for this gig. But there, and there was also another prerequisite that they wanted you to be blonde and under 30. <laughs> so, so I guess I checked That's all the boxes. Question, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I checked all the boxes. So, so off I went to Brunei. I was singing in the Royal Palace for Prince Jeffrey, who was kind of the playboy prince of the family. It was incredible. I mean, everything was made of gold, studded with jewels. There were Picassos and Monets, and it was just so over-the-top opulent, this palace. And we, meaning there were four of us singers, I was the only one from North America, and uh, we would sing these pop songs of uh, the day, like... I still remember. Like all these funny little old Malaysian songs. I had to memorize them. We were basically performing for the Sultan uh, or, or Prince Jeffrey, Prince Sufri, and like oil guys from like sheiks from Saudi Arabia, whatever. Special guests, politicians, you know. And then, of course, about 40 beautiful Young girls would file in and they were like the harem girls, basically. So mm -hmm. we were performing for the guests. <laughs> I guess you could say it was like a modern day harem. I think the cat's out of the bag. I mean, there have been books written about this now by harem girl, ex-harem girls telling the story. But it was quite a thing, quite a thing to see um, experience as a young singer. But my experience there was positive. I mean, they were very respectful to me, gave me a, a very nice gift when I left, which was a, a Cartier 
gold Cartier watch, which I th- I didn't know what a Cartier watch was. I was like, oh, that's nice. Didn't realize it was worth like $13,000. <laughs> so it was a kind of a, a nice parting gift, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was fun to meet some of the girls. I'm still friends with the DJ. She she was uh, from Singapore. And um, yeah, so it was just a gig. I was there for a month singing every night uh, Malaysian and Japanese songs. It was fun. Where did they put you up then? So were you like in... Part of the we were put up well, in like a like a, a like a condominium complex. So I had my own condo, um, which I shared with another singer. And then Anthony, who was our music director, he would pick me up in a BMW and whiz me off to the palace. And it was like he was driving like 200 miles an hour. And then we go through these gates and these like it was like a James Bond movie driving <laughs> there, you know, because you're going through the jungle basically. And then you go through a checkpoint and the guys, okay, that guy, and they, they pull out the, the, the gate and they've all got like machine guns and swords, you know, they had Gurkhas. These were the guys that would uh, guard the palace. So, you know, it was all very exotic and uh, and rather James Bond-ish. It's slightly surreal, right? If you, com- if you compare it to, um, to some of the places you've played in Canada. Yeah. Where, where are you from in Canada? Uh, um, Victoria on, on Vancouver Island. Very nice. I was there many years ago. Um, some of the venues you've played, what do you like to play now? I mean, obviously you're very versatile and very experienced, but personally for you, where do you like to play these days? Honestly, these days, what I most appreciate for so many reasons are are beautiful jazz clubs. And, and because I appreciate them because it's very hard to maintain a business like that. So, you know, shout out to the venue owners who who have grand pianos and keep them tuned on stage and, and have a listening audience. So um, 2017 and 18, I toured in Australia. And two of my favorite venues are there, actually. Um, one is in Melbourne. It's called uh, Paris Cat, Paris Cat Jazz Club. And then in, um, in Brisbane, there's one called Dubop, Dubop Jazz Club. And I love these kinds of clubs because they're, they're intimate venues, but they're still big enough, like, I don't know, 80, 100 people, something like that. And um, when I was there, we sold them out. So it was like packed, but still in- intimate, you mm-hmm. know, so you can still have a connection with the audience. And they're really beautiful venues, just like aesthetically beautiful and good sound, enough room on the stage to move around, piano, audiences that come to listen and are genuinely interested in, in what's going on. And so I love venues like that. Would you say that they're a, a dying breed or is it just, um, you might find a jazz bar in bigger cities, yeah, but it's... Um, yeah, I think it's very, very difficult to maintain these kinds of venues because, well, I, I guess it depends on the country and it depends on the tax laws and the rents, you know, like, I mean, I knew in, I knew in, in New York, like, uh, uh, like Smalls, for example, jazz club there. God, incredible rent that they have to pay, you know, to just to, to stay alive. And then you've got your liquor license and you've got to, you know, have your weight Keeping staff. Keeping costs, and I mean, that's the new thing, right? You know, it's all going to so be... So hard, you know. Yeah. But I think, I do believe that there still is a huge appetite for live music. And I know here in Spain, even though, like I said, it's kind of an ugly scene in terms of there's a lot of schlock here, a lot of pachanga, <laughs> as we say in Spain. Um, but there is also a beautiful jazz club here in, in Torremolinos in Malaga called mm-hmm. the Clarence Jazz Club, which, again, is a beautiful jazz club. So I think things are picking up there. And I think after this whole lockdown period, people are really, you know, they want that experience because... You can have all the Instagram videos on the world and all the YouTube videos, but there is no replacement for live music. There's no replacement for it. So if there's any saving grace for us as musicians going forward in this uh, new world that's being created, there is no replacement for live music. You can't replace it. So I think um, we just got to keep finding ways to be able to tour and it's very difficult with all these changing travel restrictions and the rising cost of fuel and it's very tricky so i mean i've been kind of like taking a back seat to touring this year i want to wait to see what's happening because god i mean those australian tours that i i put together myself it was like a year of paperwork and then you know you do something like that and then it has to be cancelled the last minute? No. I mean, it wasn't. But I mean, nowadays, yeah, you never know what's going to happen, right? So yeah. kind of got to wait and wait till the coast is clear. But yeah, I love touring. 
I love it. Love it. Love performing. How about a top five, Nancy? Oh, good. <laughs> okay. Uh, where should we start? How about a guilty pleasure? I, I grew up in the 80s, right? So give me some like uh, Van Halen, ACDC, White Snake, Aerosmith, Perfect. you know, all that 80s, <laughs> 80s rock. <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of like sophisticated jazz artist now. So. But I love all that. I love all that stuff. It's just so fun. It reminds me of, I used to have a truck and I used to live in the bush, right? Or close to the bush. So I used to like drive up into the bush, like going four by fouring and drinking beer and climbing trees and listening to ACDC and Van Halen. Very loud and rough fun. music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was fun. Uh, someone or something you don't quite get, Nancy. Oh, honestly, I don't get this um, Taylor Swift phenomenon. I get it in a way. Like I get that she's um, successful and she absolutely should be. She writes clever lyrics that um, appeal to young girls and she's pretty and confident and fashionable and um, obviously very hard worker, plays the guitar. I mean, she ticks lots of boxes for, for being a, a popular um, and well-deserved uh, artist. But to dominate the music scene, like – like I said before, like who, who is the, where is the Joni Mitchell of this generation or like something, a deep, a deeper experience, you know, because music like Taylor Swift, it's, it's, I mean, it's very well produced, I, but mm. it's so overly polished and overly produced. And the, I mean, the videos are incredible. I mean, they must spend like zillions of dollars on these videos. I think it's a lot about video probably, but, but musically speaking, I, I guess I don't really get it. Like, I mean, not to, I don't like to diss anybody because she, she's a hard worker, but right. you know, she's not a great singer. She's not a great, uh, I don't know. It doesn't have an interesting voice in my case. I mean, it's, I guess it's about writing songs that are appealing to kids. Right. But, but she seems to have been dominating this um, music scene for a long time now. And I'm kind of surprised by it. I guess that I, I guess I don't really get it. Was the I guess last I'm album old. she did? Oh, yeah, you and I both. I don't know. I just really just, just like, yeah, uh, I just, I don't get it. So. Don't I'm know. probably wrong. I'm probably wrong. So <laughs> It's like Beyonce. Beyonce keeps winning all these Grammys or all these other things. And yeah, I'm just like, all right. Cool. Yeah, with Beyonce, I mean, I get it. And I said she's an, a phenomenal singer and performer. Yeah. She really is. I mean, she's a great artist. But musically speaking, a lot of times I would say I, I don't get Leaves it. Leaves me a bit cold, you know. Yeah. Maybe it's not designed for you or I. Maybe that's I what guess. it is. How I about, guess so. <laughs> how about a go-to karaoke tune? Since oh, God. We were this oh. karaoke. Oh, no. <laughs> karaoke is like a dirty word for me. It's like I hate the word karaoke. Oh, my God. We can karaoke use the Korean oh. one for it. Then the Korean one is Nori Bang. So let's let's change it up. And okay. How about, like, how about like instead of like karaoke song, like a jam session song? Perfect. A go-to jam session song? Okay. I can live with that. Um, Rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin. Like, I just like to like jump around the stage and pretend I'm like a rock star. It's like so much fun. <laughs> and just like, ah, you know. So, yeah, rock and roll, that's up one. I don't know about you, but I can remember the, f I can still remember the first time I've got to take my glasses off for dramatic effect now. The, the first <laughs> time I, I heard Led Zeppelin uh, 4. Oh, yeah. And just hearing rock and roll, especially like on a record player, <laughs> I was just like, what is that? I was like, yeah. I was aware of rock and roll, but not like this, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. My goodness, that's, uh, can we play it any louder? Can we play it again? This episode shall be the Led Zeppelin tribute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Which you would never know from listening to my music because I'm not a rock singer and it, you probably won't hear any of these influences. Well, you might in the intensity of it, but uh, yeah, I mean, I just am a product of the 80s. What, what can I say? Hmm. 70s, 80s. Who should we be listening to, Nancy? Who Earlier you were talking a little flamenco, but uh, with that, anyone you would recommend that we, we check out? You know, there are some really good singers coming up. Um, I'll be interested to see what they do because they're still young and still trying to find their sound, I think. But there's a singer called Yeba Smith. Yeba, Y-E-B-B-A. Just a phenomenal vocalist, like a really naturally talented, uh, prodigious vocalist creating some really beautiful sounds. Um, another singer I really like is Veronica Swift because she's such an excellent musician and she can scat her way through anything, but she also, she also has a rock and roll kind of a, an edge to her. And I think she's, you know, also just finding her thing. So those are two that I'm kind of looking out for. 
Another one, maybe Samara Joy, very young jazz singer, but just a gorgeous voice and an excellent singer. So I think I just, I, I appreciate these excellent singing um, voices, but I'm, I'm interested to see what they're going to do musically, you know, what kind of sounds they're going to create. So as I said, they're still young, let's see what they do. And as we talked earlier about some of the locations you've played in, the, the many exotic stroke erotic cities that you have played in, or town cities, villages, and so on, what about a favourite venue then? Um, well, besides those I mentioned, the Dubop and Paris Cat in Australia, let's see. Well, a few years ago I played at the, the biggest jazz festival in Africa, in Senegal, in St. Louis, and I was so impressed by that because, you know, you, Senegal is doesn't have all of the advantages that we do in, in Europe, and yet they managed to create an incredibly beautiful stage and piano and sound and the whole thing. It was a big jazz festival. Oh, a lot of famous people have gone there, but um, so they've, you know, they've got a name and I guess they have enough infrastructure to, to put that together uh, based on years of experience. But uh, Senegal, the St. Louis Jazz Festival, that's what it was called. That, that was a, a great one. Another one was the Queen Elizabeth Theatre on the QE2. The QE2 is a Cunard uh, cruise ship. And, and after doing my piano vocal gig for years, I used to do um, what's called a guest entertainer show where you just fly in to the ship and do two shows and then you fly home. So you're just on the ship for a week. And um, the QE2 has a really, really good orchestra on board. And so I so much appreciated the the musicians and, of course, you go into a venue like that, um, a big uh, theater on a cruise ship, and you have every advantage of of the most uh, modern technology of sound and lights and uh, video and everything you want. So it's kind of a treat to play a venue like that because you don't have to do anything. You just have to show up and sing. <laughs> everyone really you know? likes it. That's when you, you're so, not doing the heavy lifting per se. You know, exactly. Everyone else, it's a bit of a team effort. Exactly. Nancy, thanks for your time this morning. It's been um, it's been fantastic uh, sharing the last hour and change with you. Uh, just before we wrap up, where can we find you online? My website is Nancy Ruth R U T H Nancy with Y Nancy Ruth dot com, and you can find all my links there. And then Nancy Ruth Music is my Instagram, um, YouTube, and Facebook name Nancy Ruth Music. So yeah, I'm there. Say hi. We look forward to seeing how the, the rest of the journey takes you for uh, for the rest of 2022 and onwards. Thank you so much. I love your podcast and I love the concept of it. I really have been enjoying listening to other episodes. So, so, so thanks for doing this. Definitely my pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. follow Can't Find My Way Home on Instagram at can't.findmywayhome on Facebook at Expat Music Pod and of course you can find us on Spotify Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts from, you'll find us there until the next one, this is Greg saying cheers <laughs>